Got your Bibles? I know you do. Open with me to a familiar story. But let's look at what God has to say about a man named David and a giant named Goliath. 1 Samuel chapter 17. Stand with me as we honor the Word of God. I'm not going to read the whole chapter. I'll recount parts of it as we move along. And uh, let's look at this familiar story, but maybe pick up something a little different than we've known before. 1 Samuel chapter 17, we're going to pick up in verse 4. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor bronze weighing 5,000 shekels on his legs. He wore bronze greaves, and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod. Its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we'll become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you'll become our subjects and servants. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Verse 16. For 40 days... The Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took his stand. Skip on over to verse 25. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Well, they told him this story. Skip down out of verse 31. What David said was overheard and reported to Saul, and Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, you're not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man. He's been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and carried off a sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, rescued the sheep from its mouth. When it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. Saul said to David, go, and the Lord be with you. Verse 41, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw he's just a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied 
This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give the carcass of the Philistine army to the birds, the wild animals, and the whole world will know there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it's most by, not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching into his bag and taking out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took the hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with a sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. May God add his blessing to his word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this encounter and for revealing by the Holy Spirit and giving it to us here centuries later to draw wisdom and knowledge in our Goliaths and in our world that we face. So speak through me through your word. I'm your messenger today. Lord, let me be faithful to you and to the Word. Let the words of my mouth, meditation of my heart, be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. And you get great glory alone in your church through your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, now and throughout all generations. And Holy Spirit, help me. If you don't, I can't. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, church. Be seated. You know, there's something about uh, being the underdog. Americans especially like the underdog. We like to pull for the underdogs. And we certainly see the underdog here. That's David in Israel. And, and the, the bad guy on the street, that's Goliath. I remember when I was in high school, I went to Isaac Litton High School in Nashville. And uh, in my junior year, we played uh, Oak Ridge. Oak Ridge has been a perennial football power. I guess they still are in Tennessee. I don't know, but they always were in the top five or ten. They were number one in the state. Uh, we, we were rated, but not that good. They were undefeated. They were 5-0, and oh, the best I remember, and unscored on in five games. Powerful, big football team. We had a good team. We had some players that played college ball. One, John Gordy, played for the Detroit Lions NFL. We had some good players, but these, this was a juggernaut. So we went there as the underdog, got to Oak Ridge, and just before the game started, Coach Bob Cummings, who later coached at Georgia Tech in Wyoming, uh, came into the locker room, and I wasn't in the room. I was just a supporter, but I was up there. But they said he came in the room and said, Guys, I've got some bad news for us. They said, What? He said, Ken Duke was killed in Korea. Ken Duke was a high school All-American football player at Isaac Litton. He was an icon in our community. Uh, in, in Nashville. Uh, in fact, when you go to Nashville today, there's a bridge across the Cumberland River right there near Opryland. That bridge is called the Duke Fuqua Bridge. Ken Duke is who that name, the last name is Fuqua. That's John Fuqua. Uh, he was killed in Vietnam. I did his service. And when they dedicated that bridge, I had the privilege to go and pray the dedication of the Duke Fuqua Bridge. And that name, Duke, was who Coach Cummins was talking about that night. In 52. When the guys heard that, I mean, something 
I just came over them. They went through that locker room door, went out there, not as the underdogs, but when the smoke had cleared, Isaac Clinton was like 55 and Oak Ridge was like 19. It was a memorable, one of the great victories, I think, in, in our school's history and certainly in high school football in Tennessee. But it was a, one of those Goliath and David kind of stories. And I love to tell it because you like to remember when the underdog wins, like the U.S. hockey team in 1980 when they beat the Russians, all these pros and all these college kids did it. Something about that. And so in this story, there's something when we read it and hear about it, it just does something for us. But there's a deeper meaning than just a kid beating a giant. So let's look at it. There are three major players in this scenario. The first one is the adversary. His name is Goliath. Goliath comes out. He's nine feet, nine inches tall. He's carrying 125 pounds of armor on his body. Now, you just think about just walking around 125 pounds on you. The tip of his spear, just the tip, weighed 15 pounds. He had a javelin, a sword, and a spear. In those days, you had, you know, two or three, you were in the cavalry, or, or you were in the infantry, or you were in the projectile class. He's a man in the infantry. And this man comes out, and you see the word, and we read some of it. He defies Israel and Israel's God. He's making fun. The word means defy means derides, puts down God. That's what he's doing. He's putting God down. So that's the underlying. You read that, you think, well, it's just, no, no. David understood this. He was putting God down. I defy you and the God of Israel. So here is a man who was a dominator, terminator, an intimidator, a bully. And in those days, sometimes when they fought each other enough and so much blood was shed, they said, okay, you get your best man, we'll get our best man, let him meet, winner take all. And that's what happens here. If you go to Israel today, you can go to the Valley of Elah. You can stand where David and Goliath were. It's not a canyon. It's about a mile long. And on either side of this open place, it's about a half mile up this slope is a hill. Half mile up this side is another hill. An army's camped here. An army's camped here. And David and Goliath come out of the ranks and come down. So every day for 40 days, Goliath comes down and stands out there and shouts, Oh, where are you? Come out here. Send your best man. Let me take him on. And defied Israel and the God of Israel. He represents, I think, in today's world, the Goliaths that we face. We, we live in a day where people have a worldview and a Bible view. David represents the Bible view of God. Goliath represents the worldview. There are two views in the world that we're living in, the culture we're in today. And let me just show you some of the differences in those views. You know them, but let me just highlight them for you. The Christian view is the absolutes. The worldview, relativism. The Christian view is eternal. Worldview is passing, unimportant. The Christian view is history, God. The worldview is anti-historical. That's why you see a lot of things being torn down today. A lot of things being destroyed. It's anti-history. The worldview is the supernatural view is the Christian view. The worldview, naturalistic. The Christian view is idealistic. Do the right thing. The worldview is pragmatic. Do what you want to. 
If it feels good, if you like it, make up your own rules, do what you want to do. And in that kind of a world, we're living a Goliath world that has an anti-God view. And when that happens, it can even infiltrate the church. I was preaching in a church some time ago on a Sunday morning, and I was preaching about things that God cares about. And it wasn't about, it's it's kind of not a Fourth of July message, but along that line. And it wasn't about taxes. It wasn't about the military. It wasn't about anything. It was just about, here are three things that whenever you vote, here's some things you ought to consider. Religious liberty, marriage the way God sees it, and the beauty and the preciousness and sacredness of life. So I thought, hey, I'm just preach this. Well, some people got up and started leaving. Well, I thought, well, Maybe they had to go look after a child or go to the bathroom or something. You know, you don't have time to analyze people leaving when you're preaching. I just saw them leave. When the service is over, several people come approaching me. One guy comes up and he gets right in my face. And he said, don't preach that stuff around here. I said, what? He said, that's political. I said, it's political? I said, it's, it's in the Bible. No, no, don't you dare preach that in the second service. We don't want to hear that kind of stuff. You preach the Bible and not politics. I said, sir, I, I quoted the Bible. I, I didn't take anything out of context. And he and some of the people around said, you don't do that in the second service. You just don't preach that in this church. So they left. Oh, I did preach it in the second service. I just went on and preached it anyway. And uh, so when the service is over, some of the people came up and said, we're sorry, Pastor. He said, I said, well, what, what's going on here? I said, this is what I preach in Orlando. I preach it where I go different places. He said, well, I'll tell you what's happened. They said, you don't understand. Our last pastor for the last 10 years, 10 years, we never heard a thing about abortion. We never heard a thing about religious liberty. We never heard a thing about the sacredness of marriage and man and woman. We never heard it, never mentioned here. Those people that got mad didn't know what you're talking about because they never had heard it. It's a church, a Baptist church. So I'm saying we're living in a world that the church even has become apostasy is set in even in supposedly evangelical churches. We're living in that kind of a culture. And as one man has said, in this kind of a culture, a nation that sanctifies the profane will end up profaning The sacred. In that kind of a world, you and I must function. And when we understand that that's the world we're living in, it's a world with a linear, horizontal view instead of a lifestyle and a life committed to a vertical view, a relationship with God. Some of you you remember the movie City Slickers with Billy Crystal. He was a bored baby boomer, and he was invited to come to his school. It was on Dad's Day or something, and talk to the, the kids in the grammar school, about third grade. So he comes in, and he sits down, and right in the middle of him talking with these kids, he goes into this monologue, just shocking the teachers and all, but here's what he said to those kids, and I'll quote it from the movie. This monologue, he says to these bewildered kids, value this time in your life, kids, Because this is a time in your life when you still have your choices. It goes by so fast. When you're a teenager, you think you can do anything, and you do. Your 20s are a blur. 
30s, you raise your family, you make a little money, and you think to yourself, what happened to my 20s? In your 40s, you go a little pot belly, you go another chin, the music starts to get too loud, one of your old girlfriends from high school becomes a grandmother. In the 50s, you have minor surgery. You'll call it a procedure, but it's surgery. In the 60s, you'll have a major surgery. The music is still too loud, but it doesn't matter because you can't hear it anyway. <laughs> in the 70s, you and your wife retire to Fort Lauderdale. You start eating dinner at 2 in the afternoon. <laughs> you have lunch about 10 and breakfast the night before. You spend most of your time wandering around malls looking for the ultimate soft yogurt and muttering, how come the kids don't call? How come the kids don't call? The 80s, you'll have a major stroke, and you end up babbling with some Jamaican nurse who your wife can't stand, but you call her mama. Any questions? <laughs> well, <laughs> that's the linear view of life. That's looking at it this way. You look at it this way, and that's, that's it. So I think a lot of times we see in the world today, the world trying to create a utopia on earth and, and trying to wipe everything out and build our own Tower of Babel, and it's not going to work. It's the, this kind of view, and it leaves out that kind of view. That's the adversary. That's the Goliath we live in in the world today. Secondly, notice who the advocate is. He's David. This is the first time in the Bible we see David talking. And David comes on the scene, and uh, he doesn't say a lot, but he, what he says is very powerful. He comes on the scene, and here's what's happening. He's been a shepherd. You know, shepherds in those days, that was, you know, that was the lowest thing on the pay scale. Uh, he's a child. He's out there. The brother's on the front line, three of them. So daddy hears about it. He says, I know the boys are hungry. So he says, David, get somebody to look at the sheep. I want you to go up to the front lines. And bring your big brothers something to eat. So he takes them some cheese, probably Gouda, Roford, blue cheese. I don't know what he had, but he takes these things up to the front line, some bread, home cooking for mama, and there's his three big brothers. And typical of big brothers, they said, what are you doing up here? You're supposed to be home tending the sheep. Come on, man, get back there and look after those sheep. And they, they start belittling David. Well, you know, these guys... They were Larry, Curly, and Moe. I mean, they were three stooges. These guys just didn't get it. And so here David is, and he said, well, what's the commotion? They tell him what's happening. He said, well, I'll take him on. And so David goes out, and we didn't get all the story. Saul says, well, if you want to, you can do it. And he says, I'll give you my armor. And David tries it on. He said, I can't fight it and all that stuff. It's too much. I'll just go out there and fight with what I've been trained to. And that's with a sling and a stone. So David goes out into the field of battle in the valley of Elah. Nine foot nine guy comes approaching him. He's got a sword bearer in front of him. Now I read that and I didn't understand it. He, he, why, he said, David, why are you carrying sticks? A physician made, I think, a very important thing that I had never seen before. He said he probably, the reason he was so tall, he had a growth on his pituitary gland and that stimulated the growth thing. So the hormones pushed him to this giant height and he had double vision because when you have that kind of growth it affects your vision so that's why he had the armor bearer if you notice the scripture is very detailed in front of him so he's following he can't see real good he's following his armor bearer out to, to meet David and notice when he sees David he says why are you carrying sticks David didn't have any sticks 
He had a slingshot. So he's got this double vision. He's got his weapons with him. He sees this young kid out there. And so he walks toward him with his armor bearer in front of him. David takes out his slingshot. Now we say, man, what kind of weapon is that? In those days, it was a weapon. Uh, they, they, they tell us in reading history that they were accurate between 100 and 200 yards. They could kill a bird in flight. That's how good they were with it. Those who are good slingers, in fact, in the tribe of Benjamin, had, they had a whole regiment or division of slingshotters. Those guys, six or seven revolutions in a second, they could hurl that thing at 150 miles per hour. So you put a rock in that at 150 miles per hour, so forceful, the Roman army, when they faced these kind of slingers, they had doctors in the army with special tongs that could reach in and take that rock that was embedded and pull it out. That's how effective slingshot throwers were. So when you come into the battle arena, there's two. There's the cavalry, the cavalry, and the infantry. That's Goliath. And over here is a projectile thrower. Advantage who? David. So David walks up to him. He's done this thousands of times. Takes that sling, bam, right into his forehead. The Bible says it sunk into his forehead. Boom, Goliath falls down. He goes over, cuts his head off. And the Philistine army takes off, and the Israel army takes off, and it's a great victory won that day. And the amazing thing, when you look at that story, and you look at David, in fact, there's, we're, David, the, the whole combat story is just 36 words. Boom, 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 and it's over. David gets the job done, and he goes back home, anointed already to be the king of Israel. So we see here's a man who stood up for God, which leads to the third main person in this story, and this is the main main, the Almighty, God. So what does David say? He says, you have defied the God of Israel. So there's more than a military battle going on here. There is a theological element to this that's the most important. It's not about the underdog so much, though that was true. It's about something bigger than that. You have defied God Almighty. We sang about him this morning. First service, we sang about God Almighty. You have defied the Almighty God. And so when we understand who God is, it makes all the difference in the world. So here's what we draw from this tremendous story. There comes a time when the church and individually, we must speak up. David spoke up. To be silent, Bonhoeffer, who was a pacifist in World War II, theologian uh, and a pastor, he was a pacifist, didn't believe in hurting anybody. He lived in Germany. He was a German. But he realized that Hitler was evil, and there came a time that he cooperated with some other men to try to assassinate Hitler to stop the world from the evil that was going on. They found out about it three weeks before liberation came. Hitler has him executed. Just before he dies, this man who spoke up, advocating for God, said, Silence in the face of evil is evil itself. God will not hold us guiltless. Not to speak up is to speak. Not to act is to act. We must speak up and we must act. There is a time to do that. 
You may have heard of Jeremy Benham, probably didn't. 1832, he died. Jerry Benham was an Englishman. He had a very strange request, and that was when he died that the University College Hospital in London would take his remains and use it as a cadaver for the medical students when bones are all taken apart, put together, put him back together, put him in a chair, dress him up, and bring him to the trustee meetings of the hospital once a year. So they said, that's a deal. He was in his will, had the money to pay for it. So when he died, they took his body, used it for medical school, and then after a while, he put his bones back together, dressed him all up as a skeleton, put clothes on him, and he came to the business meetings, and it was business meetings till he died. That was in his will. And what they did, they'd call the roll, and they would ask, it'd come to his name, Jeremy Benham. And there's a skeleton sitting there, a man behind him. And the, and the man would say, Jeremy Benham, present, but not voting. Well, that happens to us today. Sometimes we're present, but not voting. Now, I'm talking about going to election. We ought to do that. But sometimes we don't speak up. Sometimes we don't stand up. We're present, but we're not speaking up. David understood the importance of speaking up because it was about a theological thing, and that was defying God Almighty. And when we understand who God is, and David did, that's why we sing his psalms and read his psalms. He understood the character and nature of God from his youth up. David spoke up, and there's a time to do that, to speak up. It's so critical that we speak up and act when the time is proper because we understand who God is. I like this that Selwyn Hughes wrote. He says it's only when we understand who God is will we understand what he does. How is it that over the centuries, men and women have stood for God in the most unenviable circumstances? They were familiar with the nature and character of God, like David. The trend today is for Christian minds is, is to conform to the modern spirit, the spirit that spawns great thoughts of man and leaves room for only small thoughts of God. Focus on knowing who God is, and you'll never again be at the mercy of the winds of doubt and uncertainty. Focus on who God is in your circumstances, in your home, in your business, in your school, the things that come in your life. Focus on who God is. Focus on the character of God. We sing his praises. We know his word. When we focus on who he is, we get everything right, most things. It's like what happens a lot of times like a telescope. If you look through a telescope and look through the wrong end, everything's small. You look through the right end and everything's enlarged. If we look through the telescope of the word of God and who God is, we have a big God. And if we look at it, through the wrong end, God shrinks. And when he does, we does, do. There's a professor in one of our seminaries. And after a young person would graduate from the seminary, he'd go to hear him pre preach. He'd go hear him one time. And after it was over, he'd approach him and he'd say this. I can tell you the kind of ministry you're going to have. And they'd say, well, what is it, doctor? And he'd say, you're either a big godder or a little godder. If you're a big godder, God will bless you. If you're a little godder, I don't know how you're going to make it. What kind of God do you have? Is he a big God or is he a little God? 
Can he handle your circumstances? Can he handle the things that you face and challenge? Is he big or is he little? David understand who God is, and he is a big God. Second thing we learn from this experience is this, and that is that when we understand who God is, we understand what's happening in the world today. It's spiritual warfare. This is a battle of spirit. Is God real or the gods of the Philistines real? Who is the real God? David understood who the real God was and is, and he faced the spiritual warfare. We're living in a time of spiritual warfare. The Bible says there's spiritual darkness, demons, blackness, high-powered. There's a struggle, a cosmic struggle going on. We can't see it, but it's real. And that same thing is happening in our world today. We're seeing on a larger and larger scale. It's not just the things we read about and hear about and say, what in the world? It is a cosmic struggle between God and evil, between God Almighty and the God of the Bible. That's who we're facing. That's what we're doing with and living with today. It is a constant spiritual warfare. Now, that warfare is being fought out on many places. It's being fought out in media. It's being fought in big tech. It's being fought in big pharmacy. It's being fought in big uh, government. It's being fought in academia. And so we're hearing a lot about critical race theory and all that kind of stuff. It's a spiritual thing going on. Dr. Ben Carson said it right. That CRT stuff, it's a bunch of garbage. It's trash. It's a, it's a war that's going on for the minds. That's why they move from the college and university to the high school to middle school and now trying to get it in the grammar school. Parents, grandparents, better be on the lookout for what's happening in our world today. It's going after the minds. John Dewey Back in the 20s, the progressive educator, not a believer in God, understood how to tear down this country. And so it started with John Dewey's progressive education. Academia took it, and now we're beginning to reap the fruit of a world that ignores and defies even God. So, and I've said this to parents, I'd say this, grandparents, if you can do it, Homeschool, get your kids in a Christian school. Whatever it costs. Now, if you've got Christian educators, and we have some, and some of you may be in that, and I congratulate you. And if you've got a school where the principal and the leadership will stand behind you and support you and the coaches that way, stay in there and help them. But if not, you better be looking at what they're bringing home, what they're hearing, because they're being indoctrinated in the wrong kind of way. It's very important for us to see that the children are protected and their minds are protected. And whatever it costs, if I was a parent today, I'd see that my kids got in a place where their minds were being given the great things and not the stuff that tears down everything around it in order to provide so-called utopia that's not going to come till Jesus comes. Understand it is a spiritual war. I've said this often through the years. If I were writing a thesis today, getting a PhD, I would go and, and I'd ask the professor, could I write my thesis on why is it that where there is universities and colleges, near those colleges and universities, you'll hardly ever find a great Bible-preaching Church or evangelistic church? You just won't find, I don't think. Now, I may be wrong, 
But you look at the great places where the great universities are, and there's, there's not great churches near them. Why? I think because a lot of the professors and people who go there, there's an elitism about the mind, about who we are. We know more than everybody else. And they come into those churches, and they don't want to hear about these kind of things because they don't understand the supernatural. It's a nice kind of religion, a nice thing to be. And so in academia, you have people that don't know the true God, don't love the true God, don't teach the truths. And I think we ought to teach our kids. They ought to know this side and this side and how to deal with it. But when they go to the university, and I've heard this heard so many times, my kids went off and came back Thanksgiving. They don't believe in God anymore. It's very important to lay the foundation for your children and grandchildren so they have that foundation when they go to the military or they go off to school that they are grounded in the truth of the Word of God and can hear these professors. And I've had them say before, I've heard kids tell me, the first day in class the professor said, if you believe in the Bible and you're a Christian, my job is to keep you from not believing that stuff. I've heard that. But if our kids know like David did who God is, Professor Whistlebridges, he won't have a word to say to them go in one ear and out the other. We ought to be preparing our kids to be intellectual scholars, know the faith, defend the faith, and speak up for the faith. David understood that. And so when we look at this, we understand it's spiritual warfare. Something else is this, and that is when we understand who God is, we understand that he takes the weak things and does great things. David's just, you're just a boy, just a kid. You're out here facing me. But God uses, the Bible says, the weak things to defy the strong things. When I was pastoring in Orlando, we had this precious family, and they had a daughter named Kathy. Kathy uh, was one of our teenagers, like you saw all these kids up there. I think it's so great to see that happening. And she loved the Lord, loved the Word of God, and the doctor was doing an examination one day. She'd been having problems with her left shoulder and found out that it was a tumor. Tests revealed that it was a malignancy. The parents called me and said, the doctor's going to come in and tell Kathy today that she's, he's going to have to have major surgery and it's, it's a dangerous tumor. Would you come? I said, sure. So I went to the hospital and stood in the room with beautiful, wonderful Christian parents. The doctor walks in. He pulls up a chair right beside Kathy's bed. She's laying there waiting to see. And he says, Kathy, he said, you've got a malignancy up here. We're going to operate on it. We're going to do everything we can to see that you come through it. We hope and pray that it will, but we can't guarantee it. It's going to be a struggle, but we'll do everything we can to see that you, you live. And so he walked out. Tears began to come in her eyes. And she begins to say, like any teenage would, well, am I going to get to play ball anymore? Can, will I get to date? What's going to happen to me? And so, of course, we couldn't answer those questions. We tried to fortify her and pray for her. We prayed for her. And uh, the cancer kept growing. But we saw Kathy emerge getting stronger and stronger. Her body was getting smaller and smaller. She, she, she was, we took a group of kids to Israel. She traveled on an airplane for 10 hours, rode all through Israel for 10 days, and her, she had a brace that went this way where she'd had shirts. She rode like that the whole time. What a girl. And as she walked through that journey, she began to give her testimony. FCA sponsored our church a breakfast for 
the football team's coming to play on January the 1st, the Citrus Bowl. Uh, today, I think it's a Capital One Bowl. Over 1,000 football players and coaches and supporters and everybody comes. So we have this room full, and they say, Kathy, will you give your testimony? So here's two football teams. One of them, I remember, was University of Missouri. I forget who the other was. They come, and they're sitting there, and the coaches, little frail Kathy comes up and stands in this place. And I'm sitting there saying, wow, you know, are they going to listen to this, this child? And she begins to speak. And she says something like this. She said, I've got cancer. I, I'm, I, unless God does a miracle, I, I'm, I'm going to not live very long. I'm going to be a Jesus, but I've put my trust in him. I know where I'm going. I'm going to heaven. And if you don't, you ought to know, and you can. And she gave the gospel. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Confess your sins. Receive him as Savior. And believe he died and rose again, and you can be saved. And she basically said that. And she said, I'm going to ask you, if you'd accept Jesus today, just stand up wherever you are and do it. And so I'm sitting there. I said, nobody's going to do that, I don't think. And it's quiet for a while, and then a big old football player stands up. And then another stands up. And then another, and a coach, and adults, and young people in school. I've been all over in this big room. I don't know how many, it was dozens, standing up, having accepted Jesus as their Savior and Lord, right there on the spot, like you can today. Right there. And here's Kathy, the weak. But God does great things with weak people who are vessels in his hands. And he can do that with you and through your life. God will take what looks bad and can turn it into something for his glory when we understand who God is. And another thing that we draw from this, God who's faithful in the past will help you in the present. What did, what did David say? He said, listen, I fought bears and lions. I, I can handle this. We, we can do this. And he knew God took care of him then. He'll take care of you now. Know that if God helped you through in the past, he'll help you in the present. And one other thing, and that's this. All of this is for the glory of God. Notice David says, you've defied the God Almighty, and I have come to speak up in his name. He is the God Almighty whom you've defied, God Almighty, and it's his glory that I'm defending today. And David did it. And when you speak up for God, God will get glory in and through your life. I had a guy that I never knew personally, but I, I knew about him. His name was David Watson. David's pastor of an Anglican church in uh, York. He had one of those mannerisms that all preachers do when you're, you're preaching, walking back and forth, and he'd say, uh, our Lord reigns. Be preaching along. Our Lord reigns. Our Lord reigns. And uh, he got cancer. He went to the best doctors. The churches fasted and prayed for his healing, but he didn't get well. David Watson passed away. The Sunday after he died in that great cathedral in New York where people had lined up to get in the church, two or three services, to hear him preach. The people were in grief. They were crying. The bishop comes to do the communion and bring words of comfort to the church. He comes uh, to do the, say a word, and he's so overcome by emotions because he loved David too, he begins to weep. And as he begins to weep, nobody says anything. They're all crying, and suddenly they hear a voice. Our God reigns. And over here on the other side, our God reigns. And then another, our God reigns. 
And soon, everybody remembered what their pastor had taught them, and he preached. Our God reigns. And it's just like a football game. They're all in one unison, begin to stand and clap and cheer and weep with joy. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. What the pastor had taught them, they realized that he does reign. He reigns over death. He reigns over sin. He reigns over hell. He reigns over the demons. He reigns over the devil. Our God reigns. And so, as Jonathan Connors said, if the darkness must come, whether by persecution or disorder or disintegration or apostasy, do not fear, for God is still on the throne and the darkness cannot overcome the light but only magnify it. And if the darkness should grow darker, then it's time for the lights of God to shine even brighter. For it is no longer the time of the candle in the day, it's time for the candle in the night that shines against the darkness and lights up the night, the world with its radiance. It's time to live unhindered, uncompromised, unbound, bold, all out on fire and mighty in the power of the living God. As Isaiah said, deep darkness shall cover the earth, but the glory of the Lord shall rise upon you. Shine, Jesus, shine. And the glory of the Lord and that's what David understood, and that's what David did. The glory of the Lord. That's what this is about. And that's what God has called us to be and called us to do. Some of you remember Kathy Lee Griffin and Frank Gifford. Kathy Lee was on Good Morning America. Miss America, she's wonderful. Her husband, Frank, was an All-American, USC, All-American pro. Used to be on Monday Night Football. He loved Jesus. She does, too. He wanted to go see this, this place, Valley of Eli. Because being a football player and a competitor, he wanted to see this kind of thing. So they went. The guy took him to the Valley of Eli. He read this story that I've just been reading parts of to you. When he got through, he bent over and he picked up a rock. And he said, this is something like David had. He picked up five of them just in case Goliath had some brothers. And he picked, he picked him a, this rock up and he said, you know what he did with it? He put it in that sling and whew, and he picked up and he gave it to Frank Gifford. He said, okay, Mr. Gifford, here's a rock. What you going to do with it? He just held it for a minute. He said, Mr. Gifford, what are you going to do with that rock? He just held it. He said, Mr. Gifford, throw that stone. Throw that stone. If David had kept that stone in his slingshot, Goliath would have won and we wouldn't be here. Throw your stone. And it so impressed Frank and Kathy Lee. They picked up some stones, came back to this country. Their daughter was graduating from high school. Their son had already graduated and was working in California. They mailed them a rock, put a little note in it, Cass Cody, God has placed you in a place for, to be his influence. Here's a stone. Throw it for him. Throw it for him where you are. Church, I want you to go home today. Find a rock somewhere. Take that rock and put it on your kitchen table, in the den, somewhere in your life where you can see it. Dedicate that in a spiritual way to the glory of God and say, Lord, when the time comes to defend your name, your faith, 
who we are as believers. Give me the courage in my job, in my school, in my business, wherever I am, to throw that stone for your glory. Church, when you go home before you go to bed tonight, find a rock, pray about that rock, and spiritually say, Lord, give me the courage like David to speak up for you, God Almighty, the God who reigns.